Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This is an inspiring sight indeed, and especially when you realize who you are. I think I've said this before to uh, these audiences in this building, that you're the most blessed people in all the world because you are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You're citizens of a country where you enjoy liberty and freedom and can choose as you wish. Most of you have been raised in homes where you have been able to gain a testimony of the gospel, and you're attending the greatest university in the world where teachings of Jesus Christ is taught to you. I should have been here, as you just mentioned, last month, but I had laryngitis and not able to speak. I appreciate it very much, Elder Ashton substituting for me. He's a much younger man, better speaker, and he is certainly liked by the youth throughout the church. He chose a very difficult subject. <laughs> but by, <clears throat> by research and exaggeration, he did much better than the subject deserves. It seems as though one does not feel worthy of, though he doesn't feel worthy of compliments, he enjoys them. I'm very glad to be here with you this evening, and do hope and pray that the Spirit and blessings of the Lord will attend us while I discuss the subject I have chosen. Before doing so, however, I am very happy and always honored to bring to you the greetings and blessings of President Kimball, prophet of God, and to realize he loves the Lord's children and loses no opportunity to do what he can to help them, to bless them, and to prepare themselves for eternal life. It's a great privilege, opportunity, and blessing for me to be so closely closely associated with the prophet of God. And I join with him in wishing you the very best, every success and happiness throughout the new year and always. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, will be of great help to you, assist you, as you go forward in this program of trying to enjoy eternal life. What I hope to accomplish tonight is to help you understand and know that you belong to the Church of Jesus Christ, which was founded on Revelation and which still is directed by Jesus Christ through a prophet of God, and to let you see how the Church operates. Since this is a subject of great, ma- great magnitude, it will be necessary for me to deal with it rather sketchily and briefly. I would ra- remind you, as to this being a church of revelation, that this earth was made for no other purpose but for you, Eldon Tanner, and Mary Magdalene, whoever it may be, Mary Smith. For you, let's think of it as individuals. The earth was recreated, recreated for you, that you might come and dwell here 
and prepare yourself through obedience to go back into the presence of our Heavenly Father. And Jesus Christ in the Council of Heaven was chosen as the Savior of the world and came and willingly gave his life for us that we might enjoy eternal life. And the Church, as we have it today, was established by God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, appearing to that young boy. And through Revelation, he was guided, learned of the Book of Mormon. You, you know the story, and I can't take time to t tell you about it. Every bit of it, Revelation, the priesthood was restored by John the Baptist, the Aaronic priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood was restored by Peter, James, and John. And <clears throat> now regarding the establishment of the Church, we read this. The rise of the Church of Jesus Christ in these last days by the will and commandments of God, which commandments were given to Joseph Smith, Jr., <clears throat> who was called of God and ordained an apostle of Jesus Christ to be the first elder of the Church. We read further. Behold, there shall be a record kept among you, and in it thou shalt be called a seer, a translator, a prophet, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the Church, through the will of God, the God the Father, and the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ. We often hear the Church referred to as a democracy, where in reality, instead of being a Church where the body governed by people elected as the representatives, in fact, the Church is a theocracy where God directs His Church through representatives chosen by Him. As one of our Articles of Faith said, says, We believe that man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer the ordinances thereof. That's the way Joseph Smith was chosen by the Lord as, a pre as president of the church, His Church and set apart by those authorized by the Lord to do so. It's always been a testimony to me, to, as I read this 107th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, to see how all offices of the priesthood were listed and the duties of each given to us. I'd like to read a little more. Of the Melchizedek priesthood, three presiding high priests chosen by the body appointed and ordained to that office, and upheld by confidence, faith, and prayer of the, of the Church, form a quorum of the First Presidency. And again, the duty of the President of the Office of High Priesthood is to preside over the whole Church and to be like unto Moses, yea, to be a seer, a revelator, a translator, and a prophet, having all the gifts of God which he bestows upon the head of the Church. Now the twelve traveling companions, or pardon me, counselors, are called to be the twelve apostles, or special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world, and they form a quorum, this is important, equal in authority and power to three presidents previously mentioned. The following is recorded in the teachings of Joseph of the Prophet Joseph Smith. President Smith next proceeded to explain the duty of the twelve and their authority which is next to the pres presidency. Also, the twelve are not subject to any other than the first presidency. Namely, myself, said the prophet, 
Sidney Regan and Frederick G. Williams, who are now my counselors. And when I am not there, meaning the president of the church, there is no first presidency over the twelve. Now at the death of Joseph Smith, then, the twelve became the presiding authority of the church. With Brigham Young as president of the twelve and administered the affairs of the church for three and a half years, then Brigham Young was chosen as president of the church, and he chose and ordained set apart his counselors. Then there were three years after the de his death, three years and two months, between his death and the, and the installation of John Taylor as president of the church. Following John Taylor's death, it was one year and nine months before Wilford Woodruff was chosen, set apart and ordained as president of the church. Since then, just a few days have passed between the death of the president and the setting apart of the next president. <clears throat> I'd like to explain to you exactly what took place following the death, unexpected death of President Harold B. Lee on December the 26th, 1973. I was in Phoenix, Arizona, to spend the Christmas with my daughter and her family. <clears throat> When a call came to me from Arthur Haycock, the secretary of President Lee, and he said that President Lee was seriously ill and that he thought I should plan to return home as soon as possible. A half hour later, he called and said, the Lord has spoken. President Lee has been called home. <clears throat> President uh, Romney, who was, in my absence, was directing the affairs of the church, was at the hospital with President Spencer W. Kimball of the Council of Twelve. Immediately, immediately upon the President Lee's death, President Romney turned to President Kimball and said, You are in charge. Not one minute between the time President Lee died and the Twelve took over as the president to preside over the church. Now, following President Lee's funeral, President Kimball called a meeting of the Twelve for sun Sunday, December the 30th at 3 p.m. in the Salt Lake Temple Council Room. President Romney and I had taken our respective places in the seniority in the Council of the Twelve, and then there were 14 of us present. Following a song, a prayer by President Romney, President Kimball, indeed, in deep humility, expressed his feelings to the Twelve. He said that he had spent Friday in the temple talking to the Lord and had shed many tears as he prayed for guidance in assuming his new responsibilities and in choosing his counselors. Dressed in the, our temple robes, we held a prayer circle which President Kimball asked me to conduct, and Elder Thomas S. Monson to uh, <clears throat> offer the prayer. Following this, President Kimball explained the purpose of the meeting and called on each member of the quorum in order of seniority, starting with Elder Ezra Taft Benson, to express his feelings as to whether the First Presidency should be organized that day or whether we should carry on as a Council of the Twelve. Each said, we should organize now, and many complimentary things were spoken about President Kimball and his work with the Twelve. Then Elder Ezra Taft Benson nominated Spencer W. Kimball 
to be the president of the church. This was seconded by Elder Mark E. Peterson and unanimously approved. President Kimball then nominated his counselors, Ann Elton Tanner's first counselor, Marion G. Romney his second, each of whom expressed a willingness to accept the position and devote his whole time and energy in serving in that capacity. They were unanimously appointed and approved. Elder Mark E. Peterson, second in seniority in the 12, nominated Ezra Taft Benson as president of the Quorum of the 12. This was unanimously approved. At this point, all the members present laid their hands upon the head of Spencer W. Kimball and President Ezra Taft Benson, whose voice and blessing, ordaining and setting apart Spencer W. Kimball as the 12th president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Then with President Kimball's voice, and Eldon Tanner was set apart as first counselor and Mark Marion G. Romney as second counselor in the first presidency of the Church. Following the same procedure, he pronounced the blessing and setting apart of Ezra Taft Benson as president of the Quorum of the Twelve. There were now 11 members of the Twelve, and this would necessitate calling a new man to fill the Quorum. You may be interested in learning how the general authorities are called. They are chosen by the president through inspiration and revelation as he considers the names of those who, at his invitation, had been re recommended by members of the Twelve, together with those which he had been, might have been considering. Because of the inspiration and revelation involved, a general authority is actually divinely called and is approved by the Council of the Twelve before being called and set apart. I give you an example of how this works. Let me share with you an experience President Heber J. Grant. While he was a member of the Council of the Twelve, he repeatedly, when asked by the president of the church to submit names, submitted the name of a very good friend of his for consideration to fill existing vacancies among the Twelve. The man was never chosen, and President Grant is reported to have said at one time that if he ever became president of the church and there was a vacancy to fill, he would call that man because he was so well qualified. After he became president, and it was necessary to fill a vacancy. He told the Lord that he knew who he wanted, but he wanted to select the man the Lord wanted and would like to have. This name was Melvin J. Ballard, whom he knew slightly but not too well. It came into his mind and kept returning to let him know that he was the man who should be called. Let me give you my own experience. While serving as president of the Calgary Stake in Alberta, Canada, I was attending the General Conference in Salt Lake City in October 1960. On Friday evening, I received a call to the hotel where I was staying, asking me, advising me that President McKay wanted to see me the next Saturday morning or the next morning. Naturally, not knowing what he wanted, I slept very little that night. I met him in his office at the appointed hour. As I sat, in a, chair, <clears throat> in a chair facing him, he looked me in the eye, put his hand on my knee, and said, President Tanner, the Lord would like you to accept a call as a general authority, as an assistant of the Twelve. He asked how I felt about it. I don't know exactly what I said. But I tried to assure him that I felt <clears throat> highly honored, very inadequate, but ready and willing to accept a call 
and to give my whole time and effort in the service of the Lord. That morning my name was read along with the names of Elder Franklin, D. Richard, and Theodore M. Burton to be sustained as assistants to the Twelve with the other general officers of the Church. We were approved by the conference. At this point I might raise this question. The last conference we had a dissenting vote. And some of you heard it and remember how he wanted that recorded. Now this is the way we deal with a dissenting vote. All the people other than this one voted to support, sustain those who were presented. I asked him to see Brother Hinckley. Now the purpose of asking him to see somebody is so that he can report why he was not prepared to support the slate of officers. If he, that gives him an opportunity if he knows some good reason why a person shouldn't be, or he was not qualified to be, he could tell that person who was assigned to see him, and he could advise the First Presidency. Now, officers throughout the Church are selected in much the same way in their, at their particular level. I'd like to give you an experience I had when I was called to go to New Zealand reorganize the state. I had never been in New Zealand. I had never met anybody other than the president of the state, that, at that time president. I asked for a list of the, of the bishops and high council in that New Zealand state. As I read over that list, I saw one name which just seemed to stand out. His name was Campbell. And each time I read it, I noticed this. I was sent to New Zealand to reorganize the stake, and I had President Bishop Vandenberg at that time accompanied me. We interviewed all these people after having prayer so that we might be guided. After we had interviewed them all, I said to Brother Vandenberg, let us call upon the Lord for direction. We did, and as we stood up, I said, whom would you choose? if you had the responsibility as president of this state. He said, Bill Campbell. I had hesitated because I thought I had made up my mind or been prejudiced in this, but it lets me realize that the Lord does direct these appointments. Now regarding the 70, before saying anything about the 70, I should just like to repeat this to you. I've written all this because it has to be recorded. As the Church grew, it was necessary to have assistance, and so it was decided to appoint other men as assistants to the Twelve. Later, regional representatives of the Twelve were called, who would be closer to the state officers, and to assist. Now, it's interesting to note that it was 1970 that the Church had decided to appoint to a, had come to a point where it was decided by the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve to organize the seven, first Quorum of Seventy. Now I say it was interesting that that was done in the seventies. At that time, those who had been appointed as assistants to the Twelve were ordained as Seventies and became members of the first Quorum of seven, the Seventy. More regional representatives were appointed, making it possible for the far-flung missions and stakes to have closer contact with those who had been chosen to assist in the administration of the affairs. And these regional representatives were made up 
of men who had great experience in administrating affairs of stakes, wards, and missions. The 70 reading, the 70 are to act in the name of the Lord under the direction of the 12 in building up the church and, and regulating all affairs of the church in all nations. May I read that again? In building up the church and regulating all the affairs of the same in all nations. I shall say more about their responsibilities later. The patriarch to the church gives blessings to members of the church who may approach him for a blessing. He also travels as a sign from time to time throughout the church to give blessings and missions in areas where there are no patriarchs. Now, the members of the presiding bishopric of the church are called and ordained and set apart as any other general authority except the president of the church. Each member of the presiding bishopric may be called from any stake or mission in the church. It is the duty of the presiding bishopric to preside over the temporal affairs of the church as directed by the first presidency. I should like to explain to you how the Church is administered from the headquarters. All matters pertaining to the administration of the Church come under the direction of the First Presidency, and the affairs are generally divided into three categories—those administered directly by the First Presidency, ecclesiastical matters administered by the Twelve under the direction of the First Presidency, and temporal affairs as assigned to them are administered by the presiding bishopric under the direction of the First Presidency. To give you an example of some of the things administered directly by the First Presidency, we, we have area conferences, budgeting, education, historical, personnel departments, temples, auditing, coordinating council, and the coordinating council and the welfare services. Under the twelve, there are present five departments. Each department is administered by two or three seventies under the direction of the twelve, with their staffs directing departments. They are namely, uh, namely priesthood, missionary, genealogical, leadership training, and the correlation departments. I shall endeavor to deal very briefly with only two or three of the departments. The priesthood department determines policies and procedures and provides training materials, manuals, and handbooks for the Melchizedek priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. And the auxiliaries supervises activity programs and church magazines. The Correlation Department, with its staff, checks all materials for study courses and magazines as, the doctrine to, and as to doctrine and coding, etc., and reports to the committee made up of the executive directors of each of these four departments plus the executive director of Correlation, together with the presiding bishopric and the commissioner of education. Here, all teaching and training materials are correlated with the idea of preparing the individual for temple work, missionary, and to accept responsibilities in different organizations of the Church, and to prepare him for eternal life. This is the whole purpose of the Church, to prepare that individual for eternal life. The missionary department provides missionary proselyting materials for preparing prospective missionaries, makes missionary assignments, and oversees the operation of visit visitor centers and other matters pertaining to the missionary program. You may be interested in knowing how a missionary is called. 
A bishop should interview the prospective missionary before he talks to his parents about it so that he can determine the attitude and worthiness of the individual before anyone knows that he's being considered. If he finds him worthy and desires fulfilling a mission, he talks to the parents about it, see if it is all right with them. And then if everything is in order, the bishop recommends him to the state president, who also interviews the individual as to worthiness and attitude. If if he is found worthy, he is recommended to the First Presidency. On the recommendation form, a recommendation form, the missions which need missionaries in determining where he should be called to fill a mission, several factors are taken into consideration. The aptitudes, as shown on the recommendation form, the missions which need missionaries at that time, and then through inspiration he is called to the mission where he can best serve the Lord. He then receives a call from the president of the Church, and on receipt of the call each missionary is required to send a letter of response to the president. I am reminded of a story about a missionary call which you may find of interest and which shows how the inspiration of the Lord directs his work. I could give you a dozen. On one occasion, after the letters letter of call had been sent to a group of missionaries, the executive secretary of the missionary department received a telephone call from the mother of the boy who had received an assignment to a mission in the eastern part of the United States. The mother said she and the father of the boy were extremely disappointed because the boy's father and grandfather had served missions in Germany and they had expressed their desires that the boy also be called to a German mission. The secretary asked the mother how the boy felt about it. She replied that he was at school and she had opened the letter in his absence. (laughs) He did not yet know where he was to be called. The secretary expressed his surprise that the mother would open the only letter the boy might ever receive from the president of the church and suggested that she call him back after the boy had received the letter. The following day, the mother called back most apologetically and said the boy's reaction was one of complete satisfaction about the call. He had secretly been praying that he would not be called to a foreign mission. (laughs) Now regarding what we call decentralization. The great growth and expansion of the Church throughout the world has necessitated decentralization of administration, especially for the organizing and training of the members of the Church in the developing areas, that is, where their Church is going forward in new areas. There are new branches, districts, wards, and stakes comprised mostly of members who have had little, if any, experience in the administration of Church affairs. For example, in Caracas, Venezuela, which I visited about two years ago, the mission president called a meeting of the members. There were three or four hundred in attendance, none of whom had been in the church more than five years. Now, last year we organized a stake in Caracas, seven years with the oldest member being in the church only seven years. I am sure it's evident to everyone that much training and assistance must be given to this kind of organization in these developing areas. To give you an idea of the growth in the Church from 1960 to 1976, 
That's the time I've been in the church. The population has more than doubled in those years. Outside of the United States and Canada, our membership has increased by 397%. In the last six years, the last six years, ward organizations outside of the United States and Canada have increased from 278 to 892. Stake organizations from 48 to 143. Statistics as of September 1977 show the following totals. We have 862 stakes, 5,648 wards, 1,495 independent branches and stakes, 158 missions, and over 24,000 missionaries. Now, in order to meet and cope with these, our responsibilities, the world has been divided into zones and areas, presided over zone advisors and area supervisors. Five of these zones and 12 areas are outside of the United States. All zone advisors and area supervisors are members of the first quorum of the 70 in, in the United States and outside. The first are the zone advisors of all zones throughout the world remain at headquarters. Each area supervisor outside of the United States and Canada is assigned to live within his area. Area supervisors are over the regional representatives who are made up, as I said, experienced, qualified men chosen where possible, from and living as near to the region as possible. This makes it possible for the leaders in the stakes and missions to be in close contact with, regularly with the area supervisors through the regional representatives, rather than to have to deal directly with headquarters in Salt Lake City. And the area supervisor is able to respond to, the, to and deal with many of the problems that need immediate attention. By this means, much training and assistance can be given on the ground. The area supervisors report to the zone advisors who report again to the Council of Twelve. Now let us deal with the administration of the presiding bishopric. As I pointed out before, they are responsible for the administration of all the temporal affairs assigned to them by their First Presidency. This includes physical facilities where they act as service department to acquire land, to build, maintain buildings as required by the ecclesiastical division. They also supervise matters pertaining to finance, members, membership records, fast offerings, tithing, purchasing, central purchasing, translation and distribution. Then they have the heavy responsibility of the very large welfare service program, as for example, supervising the Deseret Industries operations throughout the world, stake, ward, and missionary, mission welfare programs, bishop storehouses, etc. Now, in order to administer these things outside of the United States and Canada, they have presiding bishopric area supervisors with a staff who supervise these matters in the areas where they are assigned and where they are assigned to live and over which they are responsible for the administration of the temporal affairs. Again, this makes it possible for the local people to get immediate attention for their, for their problems and provides proper training in all areas of administration. General authorities and presiding bishopric area supervisors cooperate fully in all matters related to the two administrations. We come now to the First Presidency. 
who meet every Thursday or every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at 8 a.m. For the secretary, who makes a complete record of all pr procedures. Our discussions include the correspondence, which has been addressed to the First Presidency, which is about almost everything from questions from should we have pierced ears to, to appeals from decisions of the excommunication by the State Presidency and High Council. There are questions about dress and grooming, standard, grooming standards, hypnotism, Sabbath observance, scripture interpretation, sensitivity training, sealing questions, complaints against the local officers, reincarnation, donation of body parts to science or other, others, and cremation, translation, transplants, legal matters, ad infinitum. Besides these, there are many other matters that need attention, such as selecting new temple presidents, decisions regarding when and where new temples should be built, other matters to be discussed when meeting with the Council of the Twelve or for the presiding bishopric. We also plan for area conferences, which are held throughout the world, and also solemn assemblies. Tuesday morning at 10 a.m., we meet to the Expenditures Committee, which is made up of the First Presidency, four members of the Twelve, the presiding bishopric, or heads of different departments present their expenditure requirements for consideration and allocations are made. Examples include requests by the Physical Facilities Department for acquisition of land, buildings such as stake, ward, mission homes, visitor centers, etc., and the cost of maintenance. A presiding bishopric presents requests for expenditures involving welfare projects. Wednesday, first presidency meetings are used for hearing reports from heads of different departments, which come directly under the First Presidency, such as the Historical, the Personnel, Public Communications Department. Appointments for important visitors are also scheduled for Wednesday mornings, where possible, and others as convenient. I'm always impressed by the influence the President of the Church has on th these visitors as we receive direct and indirect feedback through correspondence or verbal reports. And once a month on Wednesdays, the First Presidency meets with the combined Church Board of Education and Board of Trustees to deal with all matters affecting universities and colleges, institutes and seminaries, and other church schools. Also on one Wednesday each month, we meet with the Coordinating Council, which is made up of the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve, the Presiding Bishopric. Here we consider questions on matters affecting each group where there's that interfacing especially where there is some interface such as the Welfare Services Administration. Following this meeting, the First Presidency meets with the Welfare Services Committee, which is composed of the First Presidency, Quorum of the Twelve, Presiding Bishopric, and the British Society Presidency. Here we discuss and decide on policies, procedures, and questions of administration to see that all divisions of responsibility are properly clarified and coordinated. On Thursday mornings at 10 a.m., we join with the Council of the Twelve in the upper room of the temple. And this, the Twelve have been convened in that upper room since 8 o'clock or 8 a.m. It is in this room that the leadership of the Church has been directed by the Lord since the temple was completed. Here, 
One experiences a special spiritual feeling and at times senses the presence of some of these great leaders who have gone on before. Portraits of the 12, 12 presidents of the Church and also of Hiram the Patriarch hang on the walls and also paintings of the Savior at the Sea of Galilee where he called some of his apostles, another portraying his crucifixion and then his ascension. Here we are reminded of the many great leaders who have sat in this council room and under the direction of the Lord, great decisions were made. As the First Presidency enters this room, 10 o'clock on Thursday mornings, we shake hands with all the members of the Twelve, then change to our temple robes. We sing, kneel in prayer, and then join a prayer circle at the altar, after which we change to our street clothes. After discussing the minutes of the previous meeting, we consider such matters as the following. Approval of changes in bishops recommended by state presidents, which had been previously discussed in the meeting of the Twelve. You might be interested in knowing that during 1977 we approved an average of 25 to 30 new bishops every week. Changes in state, ward, mission, and temple organizations throughout the Church, including boundaries and officers. Officers and administration of auxiliary organizations. Matters brought in by the heads of different departments, which I have enumerated elsewhere. Each of us makes a report of his state conferences and other activities during the week, such as attending funerals, speaking engagements, etc. I'll report this next Thursday. It is in this body that any change in administration or policy is concerned and approved, which then becomes the official policy of the Church. Let me give you an example of how this is done. I remember so well when a matter being discussed where different members of the Twelve had differing views and expressed them freely. When President McKay, after some discussion of the Twelve, summed up the discussions and said, this is what I think we should do. I turned to the brother next to me, put my hand on his knee, and said, Isn't it wonderful to see how he always comes up with the right answer? And we all seemed to feel that it is the right answer. My colleague turned to me and said, You are listening to a prophet of God. And I felt a little bit ashamed. This is how we know that any decision that is made becomes the unanimous decision of the group regardless of the feeling of any member prior to the decision. Now, the first Thursday of every month, the First Presidency meets with all of the general authorities, the members of the Twelve, the Patriarch, to the Church, the Seventy, and the presiding bishopric. In this meeting, they are all advised of any changes in programs or procedures and instructed in their duties or responsibilities. The President calls them on members of the to bear their testimony, after which we all dress in our temple clothes, partake of the sacrament, and have a prayer circle with all members present participating. At the conclusion of the prayer, all others, all other than the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve, are dismissed, and those remaining change to their street clothes and carry on with the regular business of the Thursday meetings. And a recording secretary makes a report of all that is said and done. 
Uh, following each Thursday meeting, the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve have lunch in a room assigned for that purpose. In this room, we have a lovely picture of the Last Supper. This is a period of relaxation, and in conversation, we exchange experiences and discuss matters of common interest. I could tell you some interesting discussions if I had time. Friday at 9 a.m., the presiding bishopric meets with the First Presidency to give reports and discuss matters affecting the administration. As you know, the Church has business corporations such as the Bonneville International Corporation, Beneficial Life Assurance Company, Hotel Utah, Zion Securities Corporation, Deseret News, <coughs> and Deseret Mutual Benefit Association, operating in the interest of the Church and in giving service to the public. Some have erroneously have the erroneous idea that the Church pays no taxes. I would like to correct that impression and say that all Church-owned corporations pay taxes at the same rate as any other comparable corporation. We hope and pray always, every day, that the Church is being administered as the Lord would have it administered by those who are placed in their responsible positions—the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve, the Patriarch of the Church, the First Quorum of the Seventy, and the Presiding Bishopric—and that the local officers may always be so blessed and directed. And I bear testimony that it is directed by the Lord Himself through a prophet of God. and pray humbly that we may all appreciate that, appreciate our membership in the Church, and strive diligently to prepare ourselves for eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.